so the topic that we have for us today is a part of the sermon series, um, which is called The Pessimist's Guide to Purpose and What's the Point of Politics? Now, before that, I do need to mention Michael Langford is here to Michael, you want to wave your hand? And uh, Michael has been on an amazing journey. Uh, yes, you can welcome him once again. He's been on an amazing journey, and uh, when you get to know him, you'll hear his story. Uh, but just last month, uh, Michael joined us on staff as a property superintendent for the King Center. And uh, he's, he's a very, very seasoned architect, and he does different things at different levels, and the Lord has just called him uh, to what he is doing at the property. So I'm really, really excited for all that is yet to unfold. All right, so with that, let's jump right into our sermon series for today, The Pessimist Kind of Purpose. I must say, it took me by surprise. I've never heard that sermon title before, a sermon title preached um, on The Pessimist Kind of Purpose, but I could relate with it. You know, there was a time when I was as pessimistic as you can get, and I didn't have a purpose. And if I was one of those, I would be sitting in the pews listening uh, to what uh, the preacher has to say, and everything is meaningless, everything is vanity, used to be my refrain. Uh, but the Lord has done good things, He has done wonderful things. So part of what I would share would be the biblical response to the pessimist's view on purpose, and in particular about politics, this, this big word that we hear so much about. But I would also share some stories uh, from my own life and that uh, from some inspiring people who have shaped us and helped us to become who we are. So I believe the slides are up. Uh, the next slide, it, um, it's an interesting one because I usually tend to go and look up the definitions of things. I, I like to do that. And if you see that politics, uh, the Cambridge Dictionary, uh, defines it as activities of the government or people who try to influence the way a country is governed. Nothing uh, um, extraordinary in that. Wikipedia, which is not a dictionary by any means, but it has an interesting uh, you know, definition that I've picked up here as well. It's the way that people living in groups make decisions and reach agreements so that they can live together as tribes, cities, and countries. I thought it was a bit more easy for me to understand. But what is common between these two definitions, you will find, is the word people. And we love people, don't we? We love people. Uh, Victor Gledhill will talk about people are important. John 3.16 is all about, for, the law, for God so loved people that he gave his only begotten son. So politics is just the way people learn to work together, make decisions, reach agreements, and govern themselves and govern cities and countries. So in itself, it's not a bad word. Is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> because we do have a perception that politics is something bad, and most people may not choose that as a vocation or a profession because that's a very a difficult space to be in. Uh, but in reality, you will find this is what politics is. It is about people. And do you know what? The Bible 
most of the characters that I read and tried to read up a little bit about. And if you try to map what they did then to what they do today, you would consider them politicians. You would consider them government officials. You would consider them bureaucrats. So they were all in places of government. There would be exceptions, of course. Uh, but you had Abraham. Uh, Abraham's the promise God gave him was to make him a father of many nations. Now I know that the father of a nation is as high as it gets in the political sphere. Um, I will make nations of you and kings will come out of you. Now that's our lineage. Are you with me? This might seem a little um, strange for someone who is a homemaker or for someone who is a student or for someone who's got a little business or is running a little farm. And you might say, I can't quite relate with the idea of government. But that is the promise that God gave to Abraham. And that is a promise that's passing on through the generations. And therefore, we inherit that. Joseph, we know, was second in line to Pharaoh, uh, the most powerful man in Egypt and maybe the entire land at that point in time. And we know that his role and contribution was very significant, uh, what he did to help um, that nation navigate through a difficult period. Moses, raised in a palace, um, and what an amazing project he had to lead 600,000 people out of Egypt into a nation that they would call their own. I, I don't know of too many leaders in our day and time who can claim to have done anything like that. And then you have the lines of kings uh, in Israel and Judah. So there were many, many people in the Bible who were used to government. And the prophets, uh, they are no less. Many of them were called to prophesy to the kings and prophesy to uh, the rulers of that time. In the intertestament period, you have Daniel, senior advisor. I was thinking, what kind of a designation would you give him? Senior advisor, definitely, uh, to the emperor of Babylon. Senior advisor to the emperor of Persia would be on his visiting card. Um, and Nehemiah, governor, bureaucrat. Um, Esther, queen. Uh, you come to the New Testament, you probably read lesser examples there. But look at Paul, right? So Paul, through all of his ministry and his missionary journeys, uh, what was the pinnacle of his ministry? It was to go preach in Rome, wasn't it? That was really what his heart was all about. And there are many scholars who have wondered, why did Paul want to go preach in Rome? Is it because it was a nice location, a beautiful tourist spot? Had he not accomplished enough preaching in all the places that he did, what was it about Rome that made him desire to go preach in Rome to the point where um, it's the only instance where I've seen in the Bible where Paul uh, has a desire and a bit later the Lord says, you know, Paul, that desire I have put in there, you should do that. So in Acts chapter 19, verse 21, um, Paul simply ponders, he reflects in his heart that I should preach in Rome. In Acts 23, 11, just a few chapters later, the Lord says to him, don't be afraid. You have given your witness for me in Jerusalem. You must also do the same in Rome. It almost felt like the Lord was following Paul on that one. 
but uh, you know, we can talk separately about that. But what was it about Rome? It was the seat of power. It was the Ottawa of Canada. It was the Washington DC of the United States. It was the place where Caesar uh, himself sat. And so there are many scholars who believe that Paul's desire to go to Rome was, I want to preach to him. I want him to hear the gospel. In fact, uh, Acts chapter 25, 10, um, he appeals to Festus, and Festus says, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you will go. So the story is left a bit open whether he actually met Caesar, but we know that's where he was headed for. So the Bible is filled with characters who are familiar with government and being salt and light to people and those in government. And therefore, when we come to Ecclesiastes, written by a king himself, uh, as is evident in his self-introduction in the first few verses, he's a king, he's a philosopher, he's a teacher, he's a ruler of Jerusalem, the son of David. Um, in all probability, that's talking of Solomon. Uh, he should by now have a very different perspective of politics and government, isn't it? Because he is coming from a line of men and women who have ruled um, in, uh, in positions uh, that were very significant. Yet, we find Solomon um, has a very pessimistic view of politics and governance. Uh, John MacArthur, uh, in his... Um, in, in his article, he writes, the author declares all is vanity. In fact, the word vanity actually has three interpretations. It has three meanings. One is everything is fleeting. It's like vapor. Another is it's futile. It's a waste of time. That's a second meaning for vanity. A third is it's incomprehensible. We just can't understand things. And all three, you would use the same word vanity and King Solomon ends up using all three of those meanings in the book of Ecclesiastes. In other words, he is totally clueless. He has really, really reached the end of his wits uh, and his wisdom, despite being the wisest man. And why would that happen? If that could happen to the wisest man, uh, could it not happen to you and I? Uh, we read the newspapers, we read social media, we get these little uh, things in our inbox, and we read it, and it's very easy for you and I to wake up each morning saying everything is meaningless. This world is going to the dogs, isn't it? How often have you heard that before? Why does that happen? And I want to introduce a term, it's there in the next slide. I want to call it as the vision drift. It is possible for God's people to begin drifting in our God-given vision. Uh, you know, I often remind myself that we think the world is in chaos. We think the world is in confusion. But we also read in the Bible, the Lord is seated on the throne. Isn't that true? Now, if that were true, then why is he seated? Should he not be up on his feet out there trying to fight and put the fires out? So as to say, well, if the Lord is seated on the throne, it simply means he's got it under control. In our perspective, it looks chaotic. In our perspective, it looks like oh, I've got to roll up my sleeves and I've got to turn this around. But our Lord is seated on the throne and even around, as, as we look today, he is still seated on the throne the last time I read scripture. Amen? Amen. 
And I feel that's what we are seeing, the writer of Ecclesiastes. He's venting out. It's a lot of catharsis that's happening here, right? Uh, he is seeing institutionalized injustice and wickedness. Um, he is seeing oppression of the poor when that's not how it ought to be. He's seeing lack of empathy and concern uh, among those in rulership, abuse of power with a clear intention to cause hurt, um, unwise governance, making foolish decisions, and all are from dust, and to dust all will return, isn't it? And uh, in a way, he may be looking at the telescope through the wrong end. And uh, it's all true, in a way. It's all true what he is saying. But what he is missing is that there is no reference to God in any of that, right? He's kind of taken God out of the equation. So you take God out of the equation, and all that is true. That would be just like looking at a telescope through the wrong end. And things don't make sense. One might even argue, does this thing work? Oh yeah, it works. You just need to look at it through the right side. And then things would become clearer. So in a way, what we are reading there on the left, it might well be what we read in the news today. Would you agree with me if you read some newspapers? And um, Billy Graham, uh, you know, he addressed the national prayer breakfast in the United States, and we know this is a group made up of politicians and bureaucrats and leaders of, of, uh, who are in the government. He speaks to them in 1964. And uh, interesting that a few points that he, he gives them caution, and he says, you need to look out for a few challenges. Uh, they are as relevant today as well. Um, the difference being Billy Graham brings in God into the equation. That's the difference. But the challenges are same. He talks about social challenges in the United States in the 1960s. They were facing many social challenges. One of them had to do with race. And uh, he says, this is not going to be solved in the streets or in the halls of legislature. This is what Billy Graham says. It's going to be solved in the hearts of men and women. And it's going to be solved in the spiritual dimension, not in the natural. So you bring in God into the picture and things start making a bit of sense because we are trying to pro uh, solve some of these uh, problems in the natural, which simply means God is not in the picture. Uh, but when you bring him into the picture, things do make sense. He speaks about philosophical challenges and he lists a series of names of some world-famous philosophers but what they are doing is a rising pessimistic philosophy that finds its way into society to bring in a mood of indecision, confusion, and bewilderment, shifting in its human positions, frightened and insecure, pessimistic of the future. It almost feels like we are standing on quicksand. If you read and if you take in what's happening in the world, minus God, that's how it feels. French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre says, there is no exit from the human dilemma. So Billy quotes this philosopher as says. So you take God out of the equation, you're absolutely right, Solomon, King Solomon. Your assessment is spot on. He speaks about the psychological challenges as well. And in 1964, he refers to 50%, one in two hospital beds 
in the United States occupied by those with mental health issues. That's about 50%, one in two in 1964. Again, interestingly, you know, if you track what's happening in the United States, it's around this time that you kicked God out of schools, isn't it? It's around the same time that the first legislatures were passed, that you would not mention God, you would not read scriptures in schools. So I just found it uh, quite interesting. It, it's not in direct correlation, but just interesting that at the same time you kick God out of schools and uh, you keep him out of the corridors of power, you have a lot of challenges that are social, philosophical, psychological. Let's come closer home. Um, the United States, sorry, David, I'm picking on your home country. Um, you know, each year um, it reports uh, this thing with gun violence, right? As of the 1st of August this year, 25,198 people have died from gun violence in the last eight months alone. Of those who died, 879 are teens and 170 are children. Of these, 14,000 have been deaths by gun suicide, about 66 deaths by suicide per day this year in the United States. Let's come even closer home to Canada. Uh, so Canada experiences about 11 suicides a day. By the time Canadians have reached 40 years, one in two have had an experience with mental illness. Young people between 15 to 24 are more likely to experience mental health illness or substance use disorders than any other age group. This is the age and time that we are living in. A few weeks back, I had the privilege of getting together with some other pastors in Langley. And uh, we said, what is it that you are seeing as a need in the community as, as a pastor in our local community? This is what came out. Homelessness, tenants facing eviction due to renovations. And this is not homelessness because of addiction or substance abuse alone. This is homelessness because of poverty. Have you heard that before? So there was um, an anecdote, a story told about a 60-year-old woman who is in the streets right now with her 80-year-old mom because they do not have the means um, to have a roof over their heads. Families facing financial pressures, conflict, loneliness, broken marriages, violence against women and children. This is as of last month when I did a pulse check about the community, care for new immigrants, refugees, mental health. So all this is true, but when you take God out of the picture. Uh, but at the same time, even as it looks so pessimistic, there is hope, there is hope. And that hope is you bring God back into the picture, amen? amen. You bring him back into the picture and things begin to make sense. Um, all you need to do is flip the telescope from the other side. I remember, uh, you know, many years ago, I was not married, but I used to drive a bike. And it was one of those days where I was feeling really overwhelmed by things that was happening in life. And I could say um, everything is meaningless. I was feeling that way. 
and just driving through the streets of Bombay and Mumbai, as we call it today, feeling quite overwhelmed and what's the point of it all? And all of a sudden, you reach a traffic light and I'm waiting there for two to three minutes. And in that two to three minutes, um, if I look ahead, it's just a line of cars and trucks. And uh, I decided to take my eyes off that line of cars and trucks and look up into the sky. And when I looked up into the sky, I saw the most beautiful um, piece of art that I had ever seen in the sky before. It had a million hues. It was a twilight. It was a time of the day when there were all these colors and it was like God had taken um, a paintbrush and he had painted the skies. And I was mesmerized by what I saw and I could see the hand of the Lord in creation. And at that very moment, the despair just fell off. The despair just, it just melted away. And I felt joy. I felt peace. I felt hope. You bring God back into the picture. Bring God back into your sphere of vision. Everything is not meaningless. Everything makes sense, let alone politics. And I'm going to call this the God lens. What would happen if we bring God back into governance, bring God back into politics? The next slide, um, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. I'm calling this resetting the vision drift, right? This is recalibration. When things go a little bit off, you reset it, and you do that by bringing God back in. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. That is the Lord we worship, the one who holds all earthly governments, all civil governments, all human governments are accountable to that one God who we worship. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now, I want to bring this back into the equation that the God we worship is over all. Amen? He is over all authority. Would you say amen to that amen. with me? If that were true, then um, I don't wake up cribbing and complaining and finding someone with whom I can vent and talk about how bad this world is and about how terrible things are. No, there is a God who is seated on the throne and that also means you and I, there is a responsibility that comes with it. Um, and I want to list down three things we can do uh, knowing that God is on the throne. Amen? So the first one, next slide. Yep. Uh, Psalm 11.3, that's a wonderful scripture. Psalm 11.3 says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So this is the psalmist venting again. The foundations are gone feels so difficult, but what can the righteous do? Well, this is what the righteous can do. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, knowing that God is on the throne. He would want you and I to submit and pray for those in authority, knowing that he's on the throne. Again, you take that out of the equation, it doesn't make sense. Why should I? But if he is on the throne, if he is the ultimate authority, if every authority in heaven and earth is accountable to him, then I don't have a problem 
in praying for those in civil authority, in submitting to those in civil authority. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4 says, First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those who are in high positions, so that we may live a peaceful and quiet life. Think about that one politician you would never vote for. You don't have to, it's a rhetoric question. <laughs> you don't have to answer that. But think about that one politician you would never vote for. When was the last time you prayed for that person? And you prayed that, Lord, this person needs you. This person needs a revelation of who you are. And maybe there's part of me that would say, why should I pray? You know, and uh, sometimes I feel that's how Jonah felt when the Lord asked Jonah to go and preach to the city of Nineveh. He felt that way. He felt vindicated with his righteous anger that why should I do that? They are so evil. They are so wicked. So there is a second mandate, and that is to be a prophetic voice to those in authority. And we do that by preaching the word of God from the pulpit, which we do. And I also believe the dispensation of the spiritual gifts are to be used in the body of Christ to edify God's people, yes. But it's also to be used in the various spheres where God has placed us. Would you say amen to that? Which means when I go into work each and every day, when I go into the school or when I go into the community and the neighborhood, do you know that God may have placed you there so you could be a prophetic voice to those who are in authority, that God would use you to speak his word, to speak his love, and to demonstrate who he is. The beautiful thing is, Jonah, despite his complaints and his reticence, he didn't want to do that. The beautiful thing is that um, in Jonah chapter 3, 5 to 10, uh, it says, when God saw what Nineveh did, which is they repented, he turned away. Uh, he, he relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So amazingly, Nineveh, a nation that was as vile and wicked as it could get repented in its history, there is demonstration of repentance and receiving God's forgiveness. Okay, I'm going to spend a bit of time on that last point, which is to be salt and light in the world, which is a third mandate and a call. Uh, you know, you only need salt because a dish does not have salt, isn't it? If a dish is salty enough, why would you add salt to it? So when Jesus would want us to be salt and light, it is because he knows he has kept us in a world that is saltless, that is without flavor, that's without life, that's without uh, anything that can bring wholesomeness and healing. And that is precisely the reason why he said, you must be salt, else he would say, no, there's enough salt, you just be light. He says, you need to be light because he knows where he's sending you and I, or even the places where we are is dark, isn't it? It's precisely the reason why I don't think Jesus ever said anything uh, to make a good catchphrase. He said it very intentionally. So when he says, you shall be salt and light, he knows that he would send us into places where there isn't salt. He would send us into places where there isn't light. Are you at peace about that? Or going into places that are saltless and that are without light? 
Um, I want to share a few stories, um, and I, I will close with that. Um, the first is a personal story. Uh, this happened when I was working in the bank. Um, I, had, uh, I had always worked with the social sector, maybe being married to someone who spent a long time in the social sector. So Shiny and I, we did a lot of exciting things, uh, which we can tell another day. Uh, but I got an opportunity uh, to travel all the way to South Africa and uh, to work with a group of 10 people and to help the local government at that place uh, in conjunction with a few other nonprofit organizations to deal with the issue of unemployment. Because South Africa, you might not know, is the world's youngest democracy. Among all the democracies in the world, it's the youngest. It's like a baby, a toddler, that's still learning to find its feet. And in that process, they have everything happening. But one of the issues happening is uh, you don't have enough kids going to school. And when kids go to school, many don't graduate. And among the ones that do graduate, they have zero skill level to do any meaningful vocation or job. So you can see the hurdles are many. Now this gives rise to crime and many young people turning to the streets and getting involved in violence and crime. So that's where in the need was. And I had a wonderful privilege of working with many different agencies, one of them including the government agency, and just helping them navigate this problem. Now, I don't know how many other Christians were there, but I was seeking on the Lord for wisdom. I was asking the Lord, help me to be salt and light in this community. The ideas that I put on the table, may it bring life to those people. Amen? Amen. Uh, so, a second story I want to share is, um, uh, before that, uh, let me turn us to... Um, just one moment. Yeah. Um, a story that comes from Argentina, and um, I don't know how many of us have heard about the Olmos prison in Argentina. Um, I believe the last time Steve Thomas was here, he mentioned that he had made a few visits to the almost prison in Argentina because the Lord came in with a revival there many years ago. Uh, the prison used to be notorious for murders, satanic activity, and violent riots. Um, however, in the mid-80s, there was one pastor. He felt called to minister to the inmates in the prison, and at that point in time, the only way you could get access into the prison was by being on staff. So he decided to change his vocation from being a pastor to being a prison guard. Uh, the only problem was it was not easy to get in. So he put that as a fleece before the Lord and said, Lord, if this is from you, then you open the door. Within 24 hours, he was called and said, would you like to come in? We have a position open for a prison guard. And that was the Lord giving him clear direction to go in. So he went in as a prison guard with a clear intention of being salt and light. Um, 
One of the first things that he did was he started to preach the gospel. Um, within a short period of time, um, 100 prisoners gave their lives to the Lord. Uh, this is as a step of his faith. The only problem was that it's tough being a Christian in a prison that's known for all kinds of evil. And uh, many of these Christians who lived in the prison would be physically, verbally, and sexually assaulted by their peers because of their newfound faith. So the Lord revealed to this pastor, now turned prison guard, now turned pastor again, that these Christians need to have a separate cell block because they are just not safe there anymore. In 1987, he proposed an idea for a separate cell block to the prison ward. And the prison ward said, that's not happening. We're not going to have a separate ward just for you. But this is the wisdom of the Lord, and I believe this is the same wisdom God gave Daniel and Esther in the Bible of old. He told the warden that if he would give him that cell just for these newfound Christians, they would fix it, paint it, and turn it into the best cell block in the whole of Olmos. He suggested that whenever the government officials would come to visit the prison, they could show off that cell block as one of their model cells. It sounds very familiar to Daniel when he was tempted to eat the rich food, isn't it? He said, you know, let me, let me have what my faith would allow me to have. But when there's a time of inspection, I tell you that I would be better off than everybody else. Well, that's exactly what happened. So they started what they call their first cell group, pun not intended. <laughs> it was a group that met in a prison cell. Um, but the beautiful thing is that lives started to get changed and transformed inside that prison. And today, they have 24 cell groups, quote-unquote cell groups, and 1,600 prisoners have been saved at Olmos. Uh, once the Christians started to multiply, a group of missionaries who are prisoners from Olmos were sent to other prisons to go and do the same. And uh, most recently, the government approached this pastor to say, you know, that was a great idea that you had about having a cell block just for Christians. You know, we, we agree with you, the idea has worked wonders, but you know what? We can do one better. Why not have a Christian prison? Why not have an entire prison that's run on Christian principles? This is the government approaching and saying, why should this just be a pilot project? Why can't this be the new model for prisons altogether? And that prison today is called Christ the Only Hope Prison. And it's run entirely on Christian principles. And they have statistics to show that in the public prisons, the ones which are managed differently and governed differently, about 50%, 50% of the inmates who come through uh, those prisons, there is a chance of relapse, which means they might get released 
after completing their term, but they would commit some other crime and they would end up back in prison because life transformation hasn't happened. With the Christ the Only Hope prison, that statistic is 5% in comparison to 50%. And this is being salt and light. This is how the church can go in to those places and make a difference. This is how we can govern and lead. We don't need to be up there in the corridors of power. We can be down there on the streets making a difference. Amen? There is a second story, and I will close with that. This one is a bit closer home because uh, this is from Hong Kong. And uh, we have a slide next. Yeah, this lady, is her name is Jackie Pullinger. Uh, anybody here familiar with Jackie Pullinger? Most of us. So it was in the mid-90s that she first visited our churches back in India, and she lit a fire, and we were completely taken up by what the Lord was doing uh, through her. But for those who do not fully understand what her ministry was, at the age of 21, the Lord called her out of the United Kingdom to say, I need you to go and share my gospel, except she didn't know where. So what she did, she boarded a ship uh, from England. Uh, it was a place called Croydon. And from there, each time the ship would halt at a particular port, she would ask the Lord, is this where you want me to get off? And the Lord would say, no, 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 till the time she reached the last port of uh, that particular ship, which is where that ship was going to end. It's not going to sail anymore. It turned out to be Hong Kong. And this place uh, was known as the city of darkness at that point in time. And there was this division of land that was happening between the Chinese government and the British government, for those who have tracked the history of that day and time. And when the survey was being done and it was being decided who gets to keep what land, there was a little plot of land that got left out of the survey. And as a result, this strip of land became the no man's land. It neither belonged to the Chinese government nor it belonged to the British government. And therefore, it became the place for every kind of antisocial element and wickedness and crime and evil. And uh, Jackie would say, in her own words, a famous place known as darkness, um, a lawless relic of the 19th century Sino-British agreement, officially off limits to the police. Um, overall, corruption was rampant, young girls sold to brothels, triad gangs ruled, and 40 opium and heroin dens. Now, you don't see the picture here clearly, but what you see is an aerial view of the, of the walled city which would go high into the sky. Um, it was just a squatter colony that just kept going vertically up into the sky. No elevators, no water, nothing um, of the government in those places. And people would live in that um, place. And her prayer was, Lord, it would be worth my whole life if you would use me to save just one. And she says, I told the Lord, uh, and this is written on the St. Stephen's 
um, you know, website, which is the society that she formed. And she says, I told the Lord after walking over the legs of men lying in the narrow streets, straddling the open sewers. Soon I found nobody was listening to the preaching and they were watching my life. So I began to practice what I call the ordinary gospel, which is sharing rice with a hungry old lady, taking a gangster to hospital after a fight, queuing overnight to register a young girl for school, paying someone's rent, and going to court with a triad who claimed to be framed. So Shiny and I, uh, when we were living in Hong Kong, we lived within a stone's throw from the walled city, which since has been raised down, and in its place, there has been made the most beautiful garden you can think of. And in the next slide, I will show you uh, what that garden looks like today. Uh, but one of the things Jackie did is she went in as a young woman, not quite knowing what to do. And to her surprise, she found that as she prayed in the spirit for men who were struggling with opium addiction and cocaine addiction, she found miraculously they were being set free of their addictions without any withdrawal or going through cold turkey. They would go through some of that, but it was nothing compared to what the hospitals and the institutions. So within 10 days, she would have these individuals free of drug addiction. And well, the long story short, her ministry just kept growing. In 1985, the Hong Kong government offered her a plot of land in urban Kowloon, where under the government blessing, they would send all the addicts in that country to Jackie and her team, because you know that if you would go there, you would find healing from your addiction. They have no idea how it would happen, but they would send the drug addicts, they would give the resources, they would give the land and all that they need. Um, the next slide, so yeah. So right now in that place, uh, they have brought down that walled city and uh, instead they have a garden. And this is in modern day, if you travel there right now, you will find that there is an installation, it's called the Jackie Pullinger Rock, in that very place where the walled city used to exist. And there is a little sort of a plaque. It's, um, it's a citation from the government. And this is what they would say. Miss Pullinger came from the UK to Hong Kong alone in 1996 to spread the gospel. Interesting to find this language being used. In the walled city, she looked after teenagers who were led astray and despite interference from the triad society, she fearlessly helped drug addicts overcome addiction through the teachings from the gospel. This is a government-sponsored installation. Her pastoral work subsequently developed into a number of camps in various parts of the territory, leading many drug addicts, prostitutes, and sleeps, sleep sleepers to start their lives anew. Even some triad members have subsequently turned over a new leaf through believing in Jesus and dedicated themselves to missionary work. Isn't that amazing? Of how the Lord would use ordinary people to change the society, which are things even the government would not find themselves being able to do. 
So I want to conclude, and I want to say there might be a few of us who are feeling stirred that, you know, I believe the Lord has given me the grace to go and work with those in government, to work with those who are engaged in politics. I do believe I have the grace, and there are others who are not quite sure whether you have the grace, but your heart is being stirred that if this pastor in Argentina could do it, if Jackie could do it, then maybe I could do it. Maybe East Hastings Street could be the next uh, Kowloon Walled City. Who knows? We know the government is struggling to solve the many social issues and challenges. Can the church step in and step up? And in closing, I will just read, what does it take to be one of those men or women? I would say these are men and women who feared only God and acted only to please him and desired only to bring glory to him. So that was very clear. They were men and women of prayer who were courageous and open about their faith. They were reliable, trustworthy, and demonstrated integrity in character, excellence in work, and had a heart of godly concern and compassion for the community. Maybe there are some of us saying, I think that's me. I think that's me. Is God speaking to you? If yes, are you ready? So I'll turn it back to David.